Well, it's good to see so many of you here this morning. I was a little nervous uh, when we got here uh, that everyone was gone on vacation. It was kind of a ghost town during equipment hour a little bit, and uh, but you all have come out now, so it's uh, great to great to have you here. I almost had to change my plan because this morning we are going to be, Lord willing, wrapping up our study of the Gospel of John, and I didn't want to do it with just five people here. I thought we should have, you know, the majority of our church to hear this epic ending of our three-year study of the Gospel of John. I looked back in my notes and. We started this back in September of 2012, hard to believe, but um, we're here at the end now, and uh, we're going to be looking uh, this morning at John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. John chapter 21, starting in verse 15, John records, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon... Son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying, but what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until now, or until I come, I should say, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? We'll stop here for now. Father, we thank you for this beautiful, powerful book in your holy word. And we know there's a reason why it's one of the most beloved books in the Bible. We've been experiencing that for the last three years. And we were hesitant to just leave it. Um, to move on to some someplace else in your word because you've been using it so much in, in our lives and the life of our church that we want to stay here a little bit longer and and yet, Lord, we're coming to, a, to an end here and I just pray as we look at these remaining verses that your spirit would work amongst us and illuminate our minds to understand what uh, what was going on here in this exchange between Peter and, and, and Jesus and, and how it relates to us, how it applies to us. Uh, this morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned last Sunday that this last chapter, this final chapter of John, uh, may feel a bit anticlimactic in light of uh, the, the, the uh, mountaintop ending in chapter 20, where, where John writes out his purpose statement, his thesis statement, and basically said, the reason why I've written these things uh, is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And you can hear that just echoing down through history. And then there's this other chapter, which is uh, more of an epilogue, if you will, that it does include some important principles for our lives as Christians. And Last week we learned how important it is for us to carefully 
follow Christ's direction, to completely depend upon Christ, to consistently commune with Christ in order to avoid uh, living a frustrated, uh, fruitless life as we seek to reach others with the gospel. Uh, Jesus has not left us to fulfill the Great Commission uh, in our own wisdom, in our own strength, and whenever we try to do that, we fail miserably and we accomplish nothing, and that's why we need to learn to live and minister in dependence on His power and provision. And so these were some of the lessons that I think Jesus intended to teach His disciples and us through the miraculous catch of fish that was recorded in the first 14 verses of this chapter. We mentioned last week that this was a deja vu experience for Peter and John and the, the five other disciples who were uh, there in Galilee having traveled back to, to wait for further instructions from Jesus. And we said that this scene uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee had to be interpreted in light of the first time this happened when Jesus originally called them to follow him and, then, and when he first performed that miracle and they caught all those fish back in Luke chapter 5. And if you remember, uh, back in Luke chapter 5, at their initial commissioning, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will what? I will make you fishers of men. And so Jesus used fishing as a metaphor for evangelism. And because of the timing and the location of this second miraculous catch of fish, we're convinced that John was describing the disciples' final commissioning and specifically, Peter's recommissioning. And so, the, the miraculous, the two miraculous catches of fish, one at the beginning of Christ's ministry and the end of Christ's ministry, serve as bookends, really, uh, to this concept of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ? And particularly, at the center of this chapter is the leading apostle at the time, Peter. Now, apart from running to see the empty tomb in chapter 20, Peter has been noticeably absent from these last few chapters. The last time we heard from Peter was back in chapter 18, where he denied that he knew Jesus, not just once, but three times, precisely as Jesus had predicted. Turn back to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is where uh, Jesus cloistered himself with in the upper room with the disciples, and we have the, the upper room discourse in chapters 13 through 17, and uh, in chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to, to the Lord, Lord, where are you going? He got the hint that Jesus was on his way somewhere. He says, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later, and in typical Peter fashion, he said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And that pretty much shut Peter down for the rest of the upper room discourse. <laughs> we don't hear from him until he betrayed Jesus. John 18, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, we did see him, I guess, and uh, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he pulled out a sword and tried to take on the whole Roman cohort there, uh, single-handedly. But he said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. We know from the other Gospels that at that moment when the rooster crowed, and actually Luke tells us that Jesus looked at him in the courtyard, Caiaphas's home, his courtyard, and their eyes met. Peter was just crushed to the depths of his soul, and he went out and he wept bitterly in the night. Now, if we're honest, all of us have experienced similar 
shame and sorrow of being unfaithful or disloyal to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. At the same time, we've also experienced the joy, the relief of confessing our sin and repenting of it and being forgiven and being restored by Christ. And in all of church history, few saints have been more unfaithful and disloyal than Peter when he denied Christ three times, and yet few saints have been so powerfully used by God as Peter was after he repented and he was restored by Christ. Peter failed the Lord miserably, and naturally he would have wondered if he had disqualified himself from serving the Lord. And so this morning's text focuses on Peter's restoration to usefulness and explains how he ended up playing a leading role in the early days of the church. Because the next time we see him is in Acts chapter 2, and he is preaching this barn-burning sermon that God used to lead 3,000 people to Christ. Now that's a sermon, when 3,000 people get saved. And so John 21 fills this crucial gap between the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and the book of Acts. In some ways, this is the bridge that that leads us in this specific account here that that John included for us. The only one who includes it in in his Gospel uh, is like a bridge to get us to the book of Acts. And I want us to notice this morning as as John wraps up his his record of the, the life and ministry of Christ, In these remaining verses, the theme shifts from the mission of evangelism to the cost of discipleship, from fishing to shepherding, from believing in Christ to following in Christ. We know that the first 20 chapters, John focused on believing in Christ, but the focus of this final chapter is on following Christ. He went from encouraging people to place their faith in Christ to challenging those who had placed their faith in Christ to follow him without reservation. A true believer in Jesus Christ will become a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. If you genuinely believe in Jesus Christ, you'll no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. Another way you could say it is once you're totally convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, your natural response is to be totally committed to follow and obey Him for the rest of your life. And we see this transition here from chapter 20 to chapter 21. One commentator has said it this way, John's purpose has been clear to point people to faith in the Savior by showing the historical record of his life and ministry. He carefully selected those words and works of the Lord that he calculated would lead his readers to faith. And now having led them to faith, he wanted those readers to become a part of the movement that he himself had joined, followers of Jesus who would serve him to the death. And so so through this account of the unforgettable fireside exchange between Jesus and and Peter in front of the rest of the disciples, mind you, John intended to encourage and challenge us to become fully devoted followers of Christ. The, The word that's used two times here, once in verse 19 and once in verse 22, is one of Jesus's most well-known expressions, two words, follow me. Follow me. And so I want us to look at this passage through this lens of of what does it look like to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. Jesus had deliberately invited his disciples back to the very same place where it all began in order to repeat and reaffirm what he had said the first time when he had called them back in chapter 1, verse 43. He told Philip, what? Follow me. And at that time, when he told Philip and Peter and Andrew and John and James, uh, way back at the beginning of his ministry, they had no way of understanding all that was involved in following Christ, but now things were different. 
They had lived with him for three years. They had witnessed his death and resurrection. And so it was all beginning to come into focus, this this expression, this command, this call to follow Christ. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? Not just to follow Christ, but to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. What does that look like? Well, in this text, we see four characteristics of a fully devoted follower of Christ. Four characteristics of a fully devoted follower of Christ. You're going to have an opportunity this morning to determine whether or not you qualify as a fully devoted follower of Christ. You're going to see some characteristics here in this text, hopefully that will be true of your life. And if if they're not, these are things that you can aspire to. If you have a desire to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, uh, you can aspire to these characteristics this morning. And so let's look at these characteristics one at a time. First of all, the first characteristic of a fully devoted follower of Christ is that you truly and sincerely love Christ. You truly and sincerely love Christ. Based on the verses that lead into this text, verses 12, 13, well, basically 12 and 13, It says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And you just, I don't know, I just get the sense that there was some awkward silence around that fire as the disciples uh, had breakfast with Jesus. But it got even more awkward when breakfast was finished and Jesus called out Peter in front of the other disciples. Verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I don't know what was going through the other disciples' minds, but if I was sitting around that fire, I'd be like, awkward. The last time we saw Peter by a fire was when? In that courtyard on the night of Jesus' arrest when he had denied that he even knew Jesus. I don't even know this guy. Never met him. And now beside another fire, Jesus questioned Peter's devotion three times. Once for every time that he denied him. And while this may have been a painful interchange for Peter in particular, this was an act of love and mercy because Jesus was wanting to restore him. Now, this was not the first conversation that Jesus and Peter had after his resurrection. They had already had a private meeting. We know from Luke 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 that that at some point, uh, Jesus had actually appeared to Peter by himself, in the same way he appeared to Mary Magdalene and, and to the, the disciples as a whole, he actually appeared to Peter. And I would imagine in that moment, Peter confessed his sin to Jesus and, in private, and, and their uh, relationship was reconciled. And so this particular scene here is not about being forgiven. I think Peter was already forgiven. They'd already worked out that stuff in private. But this is about being restored to usefulness and being reaffirmed as the leader of the apostolic band. And the reason Jesus had this penetrating conversation with Peter in the presence of the other disciples is so that they would see and hear that he was restored and still qualified to serve as their leader. Because it would have been very natural for them to think, well, okay, we got to replace Peter because he just blew it. 
He's not qualified to be our leader anymore. And so this was as much for the disciples as it was for Peter, but obviously far more tense for him than them. I'm sure his face turned red and his heart began to race and his stomach knotted up and maybe even his eyes filled with tears when Jesus looked at him across that fire and said, Peter, do you love me? Do you, do you really love me? Again, Peter's sin was public. It happened out in the open. And so it had to be dealt with out in the open, publicly. They all knew he had sinned, and so they all needed to know that he'd been restored. And I think this is a good reminder here that the general rule of thumb is when it comes to dealing with sin is this, okay? This is, this is how, in general, you deal with sin. Private sins should be dealt with privately. And public sins should be dealt with publicly. That sounds simple enough, right? But it's very challenging to apply when you're dealing with a sin situation. And over the years, the pastors and elders of this church have been accused from time to time of covering up sin in our church. You may have thought that. I've heard that some think that. Well, again, I just want to remind you from this example that if a sin is private, it should be kept private. And if a sin becomes public knowledge, it should be handled publicly. And I would add this as well. The only time a person's sin should be exposed publicly is if they refuse to repent of it. There's lots of sin that takes place in the life of this church, but by the grace of God, there's also lots of repentance that takes place in the life of this church. And if somebody repents, you don't put a big A on their chest and make them walk around for the rest of their career at your church as the adulterer or as the uh, you fill in the blank. 1 Timothy 5.20 says that if a person continues to sin... You rebuke in the presence of all, so the others will be fearful of sinning. But if a person does repent of their sin, the most loving thing to do is to not talk about it anymore, which we love to do, right? We love to gossip about other people's sins. But the most loving thing to do is just to cover it. 1 Peter 4.8 excuse me, 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter said that we are to be diligent or fervent in our love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. We're not talking about sweeping sin under the rug and not dealing with it, are we? No. But we're saying in general, when someone is broken and repentant, in love you cover that sin. One of my favorite examples is... is uh, Back in Genesis chapter 9, when Noah, after coming out of the ark, he plants a vineyard, apparently he didn't know the power of the, of the vine, and he gets drunk. And he's laying in his tent drunk, but he's also buck naked. And so his son walks in, his son Ham, and sees it and thinks it's kind of funny that his dad's in this drunken, naked state, and he goes out to his brothers and says, hey guys, you won't believe dad's in the tent smashed and naked. You got to check this out. Well, what did the two older brothers do? They took a, a blanket and it says they turned their face away and they walked in backwards, if you will, with never looking at their dad and covered up, covered him up with a blanket. They honored their dad. And when he's, he came out of that drunken stupor, you remember what happened. He cursed Ham, and he became the Canaanites. <laughs> That's a little lesson there, right? Be careful how you treat people in sin, right? Um, what goes around comes around. And uh, he became the Canaanites who got whooped up on all throughout the Old Testament by God's people. Again, in this case... Jesus gave the other disciples a front row seat to Peter's restoration. This was not a negative thing. 
This was a positive thing. And they needed to know, even as Peter needed to know, that even though he had forsaken Jesus, Jesus hadn't forsaken him. But it is kind of messy at first. (laughs) Because he said to Simon Peter, Simon. Peter hated it when Jesus called him Simon. That was his original name. But when Jesus met Peter, he nicknamed him what? Peter. You're not going to be Simon anymore. You're going to be Peter, which means what? The rock. And Jesus was anticipating that he was going to be the the leader of the church. But whenever Peter messed up and failed to live up to his new name, and he wasn't rock-like, he wavered, he sinned, he stuck his foot in his mouth, and he needed to be rebuked or corrected, Jesus would always call him Simon. You can see this in Matthew 17, Mark 14, Luke 22. Whenever you see Jesus call, call, call Peter Simon, just, you just duck, because he's going to get it. He, Jesus is going to take him to the woodshed. And it was this, this, and someone said it this way, it's as if our Lord called him by his former name when he was acting like his former self. And so he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now there's a lot of discussion of what is, what is, who, who's, what's more than these? What is he referring to? What are the more than these? He could have been referring to the fish that they had just caught, the boats, right? Peter had gone back fishing, kind of going back to his old career, if you will, and some would say that, that, that this is what he was referring to. Do you, do you really love me more than fishing? Are you ready to stop fishing and start shepherding sheep? Or he could have been referring to the other disciples. We're not sure. Maybe he pointed, hey, 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 Peter or Simon, do you, do you love me more than these? And maybe he, he looked at the nets and the pile of fish in the boat. Or he, he, he said this. He said, hey, Simon, do you, do you love me more than these guys? The other guys that were sitting around the fire? I think it's the latter. Based on the fact that Peter had previously boasted of his devotion for Christ and even contrasted his devotion with that of the other disciples, implying that he loved Jesus more than the other disciples did. Because when Jesus said, hey, guess what, guys? You're all going to fall away. And what did Peter say? Oh, no, I'm not. All these guys might fall away, but I will never fall away. If any man thinks he stands, right, take heed lest he fall. In other words, hey, these knuckleheads might not be faithful, but I'm going to be faithful. Because they, they may not love you like I, but I love you more than these guys. Well, now, as you can imagine, after his denial, Peter was no longer so quick to speak. He had been put in his place big time. He was no longer proud and presumptuous. He had been humbled by the Lord. He wasn't about to claim total devotion to Christ like he had previously. And so I find it interesting that he used a lesser word for love, something less than total devotion, which was the only thing he felt safe in claiming at this point. And you can't see this in the, in the English translation. You can if you have an NIV. They, they try to help us with this, but the word here in the Greek, it says, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? We know that's the word for love. Do you agape me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And the word phileo was like Philadelphia, the, it meant brotherly love. It was more of a f- familial love, a family-type love. It wasn't a, the sacrificial devotion, the agape love that God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son, giving of yourself. So in some sense, these are different degrees of love. Agape love is the highest form of love. And then you've got phileo, which is, a, again, more of the brother-to-brother type of love. Again, some commentators say we shouldn't make too much of of these two different words that John used for love because he uses them interchangeably in other places and, and this conversation originally happened in Aramaic anyway and this is the Greek translation and so it may have just been merely stylistic. 
but I do think it may be significant, even as the NIV has translated it. The NIV says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you or just love you is the idea. Well, this doesn't just happen once, okay? <laughs> Peter doesn't just have to experience this, this, this convicting question once, this embarrassing question once. He has to endure it two more times. Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And again, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Again, he's not about to, to come out there and, and say, you know, right? Like he used to. And then the third time, Simon, son of John, do you, interesting, he asked him, do you phileo me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? But notice what he finally reverts to, and that's just the omniscience of the Lord. He said, Lord, you know, you know all things. I can't hide from you. You know what's in my heart. You know that I love you. Lord, even though I failed you, you know that in my heart of hearts, I still love you. That's why I just jumped out of the boat and swam as fast as I could to get here. And so I think Jesus intended for this conversation to not only encourage Peter, that he still wanted to use him, but, but to forever burn into his mind and also the minds of the other disciples that the primary prerequisite for being used by the Lord was love for the Lord. This is the highest, purest motive for serving Christ is that you love Christ. Why did you come here to church today? Well, because it's just what you do on Sunday mornings. Or did you come here because you love Christ? Why are you going to get up tomorrow morning and read your Bible? Well, because somebody's going to ask me this week if I did it, so I need to do it. Or are you going to do it because you just love Jesus? Well, why, why are you going to hopefully tell someone at Thanksgiving dinner, uh, a, an unsafe family member or friend who maybe has come into town or just come over for supper or lunch, or why are you going to try to share Christ with them? Well, because, you know, I'm obligated to do that, and the church has kind of been beating up on us a lot lately about we need to be telling people about Jesus. Or are you going to tell them about Jesus because you just love Jesus? Ken Hughes says it this way. He said, quote, the abiding principle is that before all things, even service to Christ, we must love him with all our hearts. This is the highest priority in life. It is the first question of every theologian. It is the essential question for the pastor. It is the supreme question for every missionary. It is the number one question for every one of us who wants to please God. Loving God is the highest priority of our lives. Christians are called to serve, but it is all too easy in, that, in the everyday following of Christ to put our priority on service rather than on loving God. I was standing down there this morning during the music trying to figure out if I'm about to get up to preach because it's my job, it's what I do, it's what I've been trained to do, or, or am I getting up here because I just love Jesus? I mean, what is motivating me to serve the Lord this morning by preaching this message to you? Is it because I love Christ, or do I love the approval of men? When Jesus was asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He also said in Matthew 10, verse 37, if anyone loves father, mother, brother, sister, friend, boyfriend, girlfriend, more than me, they're not what? Worthy of me. In other words, you can't love anybody or anything more than you love Jesus and call yourself a disciple, call yourself a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a truly, fully devoted follower of Christ, is that you truly and sincerely, sincerely love Christ. 
That's the first characteristic. That's the starting point of being a fully devoted follower of Christ. That while you don't see him, you love him. 1 Peter 1.8. While you don't see him. Anybody ever seen? I'm always scared to ask this. Anybody ever seen Jesus? Please don't raise your hand, okay? I don't even want to see it. La, 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 la. If you raise your hand, you can see one of the elders afterwards. But listen, none of us have seen Jesus, but we love him. That's a mark of a true Christian. That's an evidence of the grace of God in our lives. That's what it means to live by love and not by faith, right? Or sight, I should say. We walk by faith, not by sight. In some ways, we walk in love without the sight. And so number one, you truly and sincerely love Christ. Number two, another characteristic of a fully devoted follower of Christ is that you faithfully and diligently serve Christ. You faithfully and you diligently serve Christ. And while it is impossible, no, I should say it this way, while it, it is possible to be busy serving the Lord without truly loving the Lord, I could be up here serving the Lord without loving the Lord. Do you, do you realize that? You could be sitting out there right now taking notes and looking, following along with the sermon and, and, and not love Jesus. It's possible. It's possible to be busy serving the Lord without truly loving the Lord, but it is impossible to truly love the Lord and not be busy serving Him. It's impossible. Because if you truly love Christ, you'll naturally want to serve Him, and particularly serving Him by loving and feeding and caring for His sheep. Notice three times here in the text Jesus responds to Peter in answer to his question. He says to him, tend my lambs, verse 15. Shepherd my sheep, verse 16. And then again in verse 17, tend my sheep. Listen, there is nothing closer to the heart of Christ than his sheep. You mess with Christ's sheep, you got a problem. You're in big trouble. Why? Because it's the sheep for whom he gave up his life. He died for the sheep. He sacrificed himself for the sheep. Those who would represent his bride, the church. And so three times Jesus commanded Peter to serve his sheep. They're not your sheep, Peter, don't forget. They're not your sheep, they're my sheep. And I want you to serve them. And serve them well. And, and, and listen, sheep need to be well served. <laughs> they need to be well shepherded. Because by nature, they're ignorant. They're defenseless. And they can't be left unattended. They require constant attention and meticulous care. They're, they're prone to wander away from the fold and, and get lost or trapped in some kind of bush or, or miry pit. And, and not to mention that they don't smell so good. And they bleat and they bite and... Do you like that description of yourself? I'm included in this. I'm a sheep too. And yet we are dear to God's heart. And if you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, guess what? Christ's sheep are dear to your heart as well. If part of being a Christian is becoming like Jesus, if that's the ultimate goal, right, of being a Christian is being conformed to the image of Christ, then that means you love what Christ loves. Wouldn't you agree? You love what Christ loves. Or you grow in your love for what Christ loves. And that means we should be growing in our love for this thing right here. It's called the body of Christ, the church. And this church is made up of lambs and sheep. Like every church, by the way. Notice he makes a distinction. Tend my lambs tend my sheep, a possible reference here to describe young sheep, new converts, baby Christians, if you will, and then sheep, those are the lambs, and then the sheep are the more mature seasoned saying, listen, every, everyone's at a different place in their spiritual walk, and some of you are baby Christians, and some of you have been walking with Jesus for years. But the point is, no matter where you are at in your 
growth as a Christian, the more devoted you become to Christ, the more devoted you will become to his church. And you will spend more time and more energy and more money serving and supporting the church. Your life will begin to revolve more and more around the church. When you first get saved, you're not quite sure what this thing called the church is, right? You just kind of get thrown into it, and you're like, okay, I guess this is what we do. And I got to get me a Bible and a notebook and a pen, and I got to get the schedule where all these Bible studies are meeting, and I and, uh, got to get in a grow group, and you're not quite sure what's all going on. And we sing a lot of songs, and, and uh, we eat a lot of food, and, and, and you just, you're kind of just getting used to this whole thing, and it's all kind of weird at first. But again, hopefully as you grow and become more devoted to Christ, you, you start to get the church more. And not just get it, you, 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 you love it. And you want to faithfully and diligently serve the church, the body of Christ. That's the second mark or distinctive or characteristic of a fully devoted follower of Christ. Thirdly, a fully devoted follower of Christ willingly and sacrificially suffers for Christ. They, they willingly and sacrificially suffer for Christ. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. And when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. You say, what is he talking about? Well, thankfully, John provides us the the commentary here, now this he said, signifying but why, by what kind of death he would glorify God. We need to understand that sometimes when you serve the Lord and you serve his church, it might require you to suffer from time to time. And yet no cost is too great for those who love Christ, who are fully devoted followers of Christ. Why? A fully devoted follower of Christ is willing to make any sacrifice and endure any hardship necessary for the sake of Christ and his church. And that's what we see happening here in, 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 in verses 18 and 19 is, 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 is right after, right after being graciously restored and recommissioned by Christ, Peter is immediately confronted with the costs of Christianity. He's immediately confronted with what it's going to cost him. It's sort of like, it's very similar to Paul on the Damascus Road when he got saved, right? He was gloriously converted on, on the way to Damascus to arrest and kill Christians. Jesus shows up, knocks him off his horse, right? Blinds him. And he ends up making it to, to Damascus, not in the same fashion as he was planning on coming, and uh, Ananias, who was a prophet there, God had spoke to and said, hey, Paul's coming, and I want you to talk to him. And I want you to tell him how much he's going to have to suffer for the cause of Christ. I mean, this is like the guy gets saved, and the very first message he gets from the Lord is, oh, by the way, and this is going to cost you your life. You're going to end up dying. You're, you're going to be beheaded for the cause of Christ. And so here's Peter getting a similar message here. And what Jesus was doing is he was prophesying of his martyrdom, that he was going to be killed for the cause of Christ. And he says, when you were younger, you had, the, you had freedom to go where you wanted to go and do whatever you wanted to do. But when you get older, you will stretch out your hands and someone will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. That's a euphemism for crucifixion. Many of the church fathers equated that wording there, stretching out your hands, to crucifixion. And even though we can't be certain, tradition has it that Peter was crucified. But when they were about to crucify him, he requested to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same way that his Lord had died. Now, we may never be martyred for the cause of Christ, 
but we do need to travel the way of the cross. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you may never have to die, literally die for Christ, but you do have to die to yourself daily. To be a living sacrifice, as Romans 12 talks about, who considers your life as no account, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul's like, I don't care what happens in my life. As long as the gospel goes forth, as long as people get saved, as long as God is glorified, I'm good. As long as God is glorified, I don't care if I live or die. In fact, I can't make up my mind what would be better. Ultimately, though, to die is gain. And so this is, again, a good reminder for us by way of application that that being a fully devoted follower of Christ, it's not easy. We're not talking, hey, sign up. For all those who want to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, there's a sign-up table in the back. It'd be like, uh, I'm not sure if I want to go back to that table. This doesn't sound so fun. This sounds like my life is about to get harder if I sign up to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And you're exactly right. There's a price to be paid. It involves all sorts of pains and struggles. It requires obedience, sacrifice, and, 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 and it may lead to being in difficult circumstances. You may have to go places you don't want to go and live in places you don't want to live and do things you would rather not do. I'm sure Peter wasn't thrilled to hear this. Well, that sounds fun. Can't wait for that to happen. But how could he respond in any other way having just witnessed Christ suffer and die for him? He saw him agonize in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood. He saw him beaten and whipped beyond human recognition. And he saw the amazing love that Christ demonstrated as he laid down his life for him. And in the same way, since Christ willingly suffered so much for us, there is nothing that we shouldn't be willing to suffer for him. And the more devoted that you become as a follower of Christ, you are more willing And you're more sacrificial in that willingness to suffer for Christ. Well, there's a final characteristic here of a fully devoted follower of Christ. And that is you humbly and obediently follow Christ. You you humbly and obediently follow Christ. The end of verse 19 And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And then John goes on, he says, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. That was me, by the way. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Peter was obviously a curious guy wanted to be in the know about what was happening in everybody else's life. And Jesus said to him, if I wanted him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You, and again, what does he say? Follow me twice. Peter, follow me. Hey, Peter. Hey, Peter, follow me. Focus, bro. <laughs> Don't be looking over here and, what, you know, you're, you're getting, you're, you're getting, skin- follow me. That expression, those two words, follow me, is, is, is pregnant with meaning. There's so much to that simple phrase, follow me. And I think you would agree with me that, that few in the church today seem to understand what it truly means to follow Christ. And yet it's the very essence of the Christian life. 
Following Christ and being a Christian are one in the same. They mean the same thing. And of all the statements that Jesus made during his ministry, none is more repeated than this phrase. Follow me. It appears in the Gospels close to 20 times. Jesus said the same thing to Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew 9.9, he told the rich young ruler to follow him. He said to Philip in the beginning of John, follow me. In John 10.27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and know them and they follow me. John 12.26, he said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And guess what? Here we have in John 21, verses 19 and 22, the last record of this phrase in the Gospels. And it's as if the Spirit of God purposely ended the account of Christ's life and ministry. I mean, this is it. We're wrapping this thing up and we're moving into the the church, the early church in the book of Acts. And and it's as if he wanted this, this clarion call, follow me, echoing throughout history for all to hear. And the fact that these two words were uttered from the lips of Jesus himself and that they dominate his message to mankind indicates that, that this is very important. We need to understand the true meaning of what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means. And if you want to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, you need to have a clear grasp of what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. And, and to the original disciples, it's, it literally meant to drop everything that they were doing and do whatever he told them to do and go wherever he told them to go. Pretty simple for them. And they did. They immediately dropped everything. They, they left their boat. They left their nets. They left their tax office to unreservedly obey and serve Christ. How does that relate to us? Well, I think in a similar way, we need to leave behind our old sinful life and learn a new way of living by following in the footsteps of Jesus. Learning by following his example. When Jesus said, follow me, he meant, obey me, imitate me, become like me. That's what it means to follow someone, to become like them. 1 Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. 1 John 2, 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, you should be striving to live just like Jesus lived. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so you should ask yourself things like, would Jesus say that? Would Jesus do that? Would Jesus respond this way? Would Jesus think this way? And you should be constantly asking yourself, does my life reflect Christ? Because that's what he commanded us to do, to reflect him, to follow him. By the way, this expression, follow me, here in verse 19 and verse 22, is obviously an imperative, a command, but it's a present imperative, which means it should literally be translated, keep following me. This is not a one-time decision where you follow Christ for a few months after you get saved or even for a few years. No, you follow him for the rest of your life. Christ is demanding that we live a consistent life of obedience. Being a Christian is a lifelong commitment to follow and obey Jesus Christ without getting distracted by anything or anyone else. Peter understood exactly what Jesus was asking of him. And that's why he quickly diverted his mind to an attention to something else. And that was his fellow disciple, John. And he asked Jesus, hey, what about this guy? Lord, what about this man? So when he, 
when Peter learned about God's plan for his life, he, he naturally wanted to know, well, what, did, what, did, what do you have in store for him? And Jesus rebuked him. He says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, hey, Peter, it's none of your business, man. It's none of your business. You be faithful to do what I've called you to do. All you need to concern yourself is with you. And I think this is a great reminder for us, again, not to allow ourselves to get distracted or discouraged even by what God is doing in other people's lives and ministries. And listen, how God chooses to work in other people's lives, and his, that's his business. Our business is to faithfully follow him and be content with his plan for our life and our ministry. And too often, I think we would all admit that we find ourselves competing with other people, comparing ourselves to other people, particularly in ministry, and we get jealous. Well, I wish I had their gift. Uh, I wish my Sunday school class was as big as their Sunday school class or my grow group or what. You fill in the blank. We compete, we compare in our hearts. And I'm so thankful for this passage because God has used this passage to, to, to regularly rebuke me and remind me whenever I start to compare my, myself, my life, my ministry, my gifts, my success, my notoriety with someone else that I might know and, 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 and begin to get frustrated or whatever, uh, discouraged or depressed, um, God, God, God just brings this you know, thought to my mind. What's that to you? What's that to you? none of your business. Just be grateful for the acre in my vineyard that I entrusted to you and be faithful with that. And so we need to remember that God has a unique plan for, for, for all of his followers and we need to learn to appreciate fellow followers of Christ who have different callings and different convictions and different gifts and different talents and be inspired, be challenged by them instead of being embittered by them. We need to be humbly and obediently following Christ. These are the marks, characteristics of a fully devoted follower of Christ. Peter was one. So was John. He wraps up his book in verse 24, this gospel. This is the disciple who's testifying to you these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there was also many other things which Jesus said, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John was just saying, hey, just so you know, uh, this is by no means exhaustive. A lot more could have been included here. In fact, and then he exaggerates, hey, if, 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 if everything were told, uh, there wouldn't be enough books on the planet to talk about the personal work of Jesus Christ. Maybe that wasn't so much of an exaggeration. But John made sure he couldn't include everything, but he did make sure to include that his friend and fellow follower of Christ was restored. I think it's a great example of John's love for Peter, that he wanted to set the record straight. He wanted everyone to know that even though at a weak point in his life, Peter had shamefully denied the Lord, but in the end, he cheerfully and willingly died for the Lord. It's not how you start, it's how you, what? Finish. And this gracious command here, and it is a gracious command, follow me. Why is it a gracious command? Because Jesus knows that if we follow anything else but him, we will be disappointed. We will be ripped off we will be let down, we will be dissatisfied, we'll be unhappy, and so he says, in love for us, follow me. 
because then you'll find true satisfaction, you'll find true happiness and joy. And so this gracious command, follow me, rings out to all of us. Whether you're a brand new Christian, a baby Christian, you just came to Christ, or you've been walking with the Lord for years, Christ's call on all of our lives is the same. And it simply is this, follow me. If you believe in me, then follow me. Obey me. As I was studying this text, uh, an old song came to my mind that I used to listen to all the time, and I absolutely loved this song, and I haven't heard it for years, and I'm, I'm going to date myself. It's uh, a Stephen Curtis Chapman song from the 90s, and um, I actually went on YouTube to listen to it, and there he was with his um, 90s hairdo and his bright yellow coat that he was in concert, and I thought, well, that might be distracting if we show that this morning, but the lyrics of the song just continue to ring so clear and so powerfully. I just thought, I couldn't think of a better way to conclude our study of the Gospel of John than listening to this song together. The name of the song is For the Sake of the Call. For the Sake of the Call. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the song. This may be the first time that you hear it. I came to Chris this morning, and I said, hey, man, I know this is last minute, but there's this song, and I saw him kind of get bleary-eyed like I was going to make him learn a song to play this morning in 15 minutes, you know? And I said, no, 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 brother, let's just play this thing, and let's put the lyrics up, and let's just listen to it and take in the words, and, and I believe that this is a, a, a beautiful, powerful, um, these lyrics really summarize um, the sermon this morning and, and, and what our response should be as we move out of the book of John. So let's listen to this together, and then I'll close this in prayer. Jesus had called him by name. 
said it so well, if we believe, we'll obey. And we'll abandon it all for the sake of the call. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this glorious privilege we've had to work our way through the gospel of John. And Lord, there's so much more than we could have considered and looked at. But Lord, what we've seen is enough to make claim on our lives, to make demands on our lives. Lord, that if we believe all that we've studied, then we have no other choice but to obey and to abandon it all, everything in our lives for the sake of the call that Christ made, not just to Peter, James, and John and the others, but also to us, Lord, that you call us to follow Christ. I pray that you would grant us grace to do that. We admit it's not easy to be followers of Christ, but we desire to be not just followers, Lord, but fully devoted followers of Christ. And we know that it's only by your grace that we will ever achieve that status, if you will, or that uh, level of discipleship. But Lord, it's our desire. And so we pray you grant us grace to, to be all these things we've talked about, that you would work these characteristics, these distinctives into our lives in your way, in your time, and use each of us, Lord, to to stimulate and and motivate one another as we all strive together to be these kind of people. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.